We're going to read Luke 23, verses 6 through 25. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Good morning, church. I've only ever attended one trial in my lifetime where I was a spectator watching an actual trial take place. I was there because some of my friends were in the courtroom and the person who was on trial had done a great deal of harm to my friends who were in the courtroom. And I remember one moment my friends were interacting with the judge during the trial, and the judge all of a sudden became nasty towards them. You see, it started speaking to them as if they had done the wrong thing. He started treating them as if they were the guilty ones who were on trial. I remember being outraged. I remember being like, what is happening? I met with the prosecutor at one point and was just explaining how angry I was. And I was actually in tears that I was so upset when I was explaining what was on my heart. Very rarely has injustice ever brought me to the point where I felt that upset before. All of us have moral compasses. All of us see injustices in the world and become upset about them, sometimes more than we can bear. But as I read the scripture, there's a problem that seems to come out. 
which is that if God were to forgive any of us our sins, that would be actually just as outrageous, even more outrageous than the worst injustice that we can think of. You see, the Bible is clear that he is a holy God, and a holy God must punish sins. And so if God were to forgive sins, that would be an injustice. And injustice tears us apart. So the question I have this morning is what can God do about our sins? Can he do anything about our sins? Can he help us? That's the question that this text is going to answer for us this morning. What can God do, if anything, about our sinfulness, which is outrageous and would be outrageous, if God were ever to forgive us? So last week, Pastor Daniel preached on the text that came before this one. Jesus was arrested by the Jews, and they're desiring to put Jesus to death. They, they put him through like a sham trial, a trial that we would all be angry at if we saw because of the horrible procedure that it followed. But they didn't have the legal authority to put Jesus to death. So they take him to the Roman governor Pilate. He's over the Jewish authorities at this time. And they're going to try to get this guy, not to do justice, but just to get this guy to be put to death who they want to be put to death. That, that's the moment where we're at in the story of the life of Jesus. And that's where we jump in, in verse 6 of chapter 23. It says, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So when Pilate heard this, heard what? He heard the Jewish people talking to him about Jesus' ministry, clamoring for Jesus to be put to death. Herod knows Jesus is innocent and knows he has a problem on his hands. He should immediately let the guy go, right? If I'm a judge and someone comes into my courtroom and he's clearly innocent and you can tell people are lying about him, if I'm a good judge, I'm going to say, this is over. I'm dismissing this case. But public opinion's against him. And how well do politicians tend to do under public pressure, right? Like, this isn't anything new that happens here. He hears, this guy committed, started his ministry in Galilee. Wait a second. That's someone else's jurisdiction. I'll send him up there, and maybe this guy will deal with my problem for me. So that's what I think's going on here, is that Pilate sends Jesus up to Herod, who's a Jewish authority in the region of Galilee, because he's trying to get this problem off of his hands instead of dealing with it like his responsibility is. So he sends him over to Herod, and Herod was in Jerusalem at the same time. Okay, so Jesus is getting shuffled around, pushed from one politician to another politician, and we'll see if there's any justice in his case. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. When this, starts, when this verse starts out, it sounds like Herod might actually be a good guy. It says he sees Jesus. He's glad to see Jesus. 
There's so many people in the Gospel of Luke who see Jesus and they're glad to see Jesus because they know they need Jesus. And you might think, maybe Herod's one of those people. Maybe he's one of those who knows he needs Jesus. We quickly find out that that is not the case at all. It says, because he long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. We quickly find out that Herod has a huge moral defect. He didn't want Jesus. He didn't want intimacy with Jesus. He just wanted Jesus to do something for him. He just wanted to be amused by Jesus. I'll say it again. He did not want any intimacy with Jesus at all. He just wanted to use Jesus for his own amusement. How many of us approach Jesus like that? Isn't there times you and I go to Jesus not because of who he is, but because we want him to do something for us? It's easy to look at Herod and say, how despicable. And then when I'm not getting something I want in my prayer life, I find myself taking a step away from the Lord. Right, one clue that we're approaching God like Herod is if when we don't get what we want from God, we start to step away from God. Friends, I want to remind us this morning that the reason that we pray more than any reason is not to get stuff from God, it's to get God. And it's good that he gives us what we ask for. I love that he gives me what I ask for, and I love that he provides for us what we need. But yet Herod was a, a king in a court, and he had riches and power, and what riches and power do is that they blind us from seeing Jesus, right? Because it makes us feel like we're in control and we don't need him. I find that another ironic thing about this verse. It says, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Herod never saw Jesus. He looked at him, but he didn't look at him as if he was his savior. He was blind that he needed Jesus to be savior because he was blind that he needed saving. We who are Americans and some of the wealthiest people in the world would do well to remember that having all this abundance here can blind us to who we are and can blind us to who Jesus is. Unless we see ourselves as desperately needy, we cannot see Jesus as the one who saves. So Herod misses Jesus Herod misses he's a sinner. Herod misses that Jesus is a savior because Herod is rich. So let us be on guard lest we ever take steps in the same direction. So now Herod and Jesus are going to be begin to interact. Verse 9 says, So he questioned him, he questioned Jesus at some length, but he made no answer. So Herod tries to control Jesus here. He starts to try to interact with him, to get him to do something for him. He tries to get Jesus to act in the way that he wants him to. And I think it's beautiful here that Jesus will not be manipulated by Herod. Jesus will not be manipulated by anyone. And instead, he's completely silent. Silent. 
How many of you at this moment might be, begin to try to bargain with this politician to try to get your way out while your life is on the line? How many of you might try to defend your innocence in the face of people falsely accusing you? And our Lord is silent before his accusers. He's silent before this governor. A few verses later, Pilate, the governor, is going to be manipulated by a mob. He's going to sway in the breeze like a reed. And Jesus, he doesn't budge one inch during his trial. He does no need to open his mouth. Why does he remain silent? Because he knows that God is the true judge and God's in control. Herod's not in control. Herod is not in control of Jesus' fate. His father's in control of his fate, and so he doesn't feel the need to speak one word before this corrupt, fallen judge. Friends, did you know that you can only be manipulated by someone if you believe that they have power over you? Other people can get you to do what they want you to do if you believe they have power over you. Jesus knew that Herod had no power over him because his father had all the power. And your father has all the power. Your God has all the power. And so you can be like Jesus and you don't have to allow anyone to manipulate you at all. Having a God in charge frees you from other people controlling you. We're free people, church. We're, we're truly free people. That's a sweet, sweet thing. That like Jesus, we know that our Father reigns and rules over us. How do you be free from manipulation? Obey God and trust that he's in control. So how does Pilate and his entourage respond to the first truly innocent man he, they've ever encountered, right? This is the first truly innocent man, uh, sorry, how does Herod and his entourage respond to the first truly man they've ever encountered? Verse 10 says, the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. So Jesus, in his righteous silence, provokes Herod and the chief priests and the soldiers who are with them. They get around him and they start to vehemently accuse him. Now these Jewish leaders, they're supposed to be the leaders in Israel. They're supposed to represent God. But they're actually doing the work of the devil. The word the devil means the accuser. So they're acting at the behest of their master, the one who is truly influencing them, when they surround Jesus and start to vehemently accuse an innocent man. When we feel like shrinking back from God because we feel accused, we feel guilty, we feel too shameful to come into his presence, we're also coming under the accusations of the evil one. And here we see the evil one at work 
surrounding Jesus with these false priests, these false leaders, and vehemently accusing him. And even here, Jesus mentions not a word. Even as the people who should have surrendered to him as their king accuse him, Jesus doesn't say anything but remains silent. This wasn't unexpected. This wasn't unexpected. This is what the prophet Isaiah said that the Lord would do hundreds of years before this ever happened. I'm reading now from Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. At this moment, the soldiers who are standing around Jesus can see he's not fighting back. They can see he's vulnerable. And they decide to have a little fun with him. Man, how ugly is it when people abuse power against the innocent? Right? This is a truly ugly scene. You have the most innocent man here, the most good man, the most loving man who ever lived. He spent the last three years healing people, casting out demons, and spending time with the poor, the sick, and the marginalized. And how is he treated? He's surrounded by a group of soldiers who start making fun of him and mocking him as he doesn't even defend himself. He's all alone. All his friends have deserted him. He's got no defense, and they're taking advantage of him. They dress him up in splendid clothing. You guys see that in the text? Splendid clothing. They dress him up to make him look like a king. The charge against Jesus was that he was a king. And so they decide to dress him up like a king and start making fun of him like he's a king. This would have been one of the most twisted things you ever could have seen to see the holy son of God dressed up like a king and mocked by a bunch of young, proud soldiers. There's another irony at this moment. They're dressing Jesus up like a king, mocking him because they think he's not a king. And as he's going through this process, he's actually on the way to the throne. He's actually becoming king, little do they know. Because he's on his way to the cross, and as he hangs there and dies for the sins of the world, he's going to win a people. And when he rises from the grave and ascends to heaven, he'll begin to reign over those people. And when he comes back, he's going to rule over the whole world, and he will be king. They were mocking him as if he weren't a king while he was in the process of becoming king of all. They could not stop him. I just love what Isaiah 53, 12 says as we go later in that chapter. 
says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for their transgressions. It says that this sufferer is going to do something that sufferers usually don't do. He's going to divide the spoil with the many. Who divides spoil with the many? Victors in battle do. When a king leads his soldiers into battle and they destroy their enemies, everyone splits up the plunder together. This is victory language. As Jesus is suffering and dying, he's winning a victory. And I'm amazed by this. Because usually an earthly, the way an earthly king wins a victory is he takes other lives and intimidates other lives until they submit to his rule. But the way Jesus becomes king is he gives his life for other people. It's the opposite way. And that's why this kingdom is different from the kingdoms of the world. It's a kingdom that's built on sacrifice of self for others. That's why the church and the kingdom of heaven is different from the world because our king gave his life instead of taking lives. This is how our Jesus became king. By getting kicked and mocked and made fun of and dressed up like a king and laughed at. That's the Lord we follow. And it's more amazing than anything we could have ever expected or thought would happen. If Jesus triumphed amid mockery, you don't have to fear mockery. I'm going to say that again. If Jesus triumphed amid mockery, you don't have to fear mockery. Mockery couldn't hold Jesus in the grave, and it's not going to hold you in the grave. You never have to be ashamed of the world making fun of you for following Jesus. Never. They might make fun of your old-fashioned ethics. They may make fun of your religious inclinations. They might make fun of you that you think you need a savior, but you don't ever have to be ashamed of following Jesus. Ever. No matter what the media says, no matter what the superstars say, no matter what anyone says, you never have to be afraid of mockery. Jesus was mocked and he triumphed. And when we follow him, we're in good company and we'll triumph too. Verse 12 says, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So here are these two corrupt politicians backslapping each other. You guys know how it works, right? The powerful people get in the back room and kind of decide what happens for everyone else, and they're buddy-buddy with each other. This is what's happening here. The world often makes common cause against Christians in their opposition to Jesus. And we can feel the rising opposition right now in our culture to what the Bible commands us to be and what the Bible commands us to do and to the claims that Jesus made. And again, I'm just amazed that the way that Jesus rises and triumphs over these enemies is not by taking their lives, but by giving his life. Some of these soldiers that mocked him, some of the people in the crowd that are about to cry out, crucify him in a few moments, may have been some of the first members of the church full of the Holy Spirit, repenting and making followers of Jesus, just like the Apostle Paul. 
So church, we do have enemies. We have enemies in our culture who are rising up against us. And the way we fight against them is we give our lives for their good so that they'll follow Jesus with us. That's, we, don't, we don't downplay the fact that there, there are enemies of the gospel and enemies of the church. But when we fight against them, we shed our blood so that they can come and follow Jesus with us. We don't fight against them the way the world fights. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests of the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. Pilate's at the point where he has to make his judgment. He has to make his decision. And I think we should just pause for a moment and think about how absurd this is that a fallen human being is rendering judgment against his perfect creator. What an outrage. The only verdict that he should possibly give in this moment is innocent. Innocent. But he fears the crowd. He fears public opinion. He fears what he's going to lose. And he does something that is despicable. Instead of protecting Jesus from the crowd like he was supposed to with authority he's been giving, he tries to appease the crowd by having Jesus beat up. I know this man's perfectly innocent. I know he did nothing wrong. I'll just have him beat up and maybe this will go away so you can be happy. Can you imagine a family member or a close friend being beaten in public who didn't do anything wrong because of a social media campaign against them? The shame, the disgustingness of this offer of this governor? Like, we should not be sympathetic to Pilate in this case. This is a corrupt ruler who is failing. Even this corrupt ruler cannot find any guilt in Jesus. Nothing Jesus did, nothing Jesus said could be construed as, of him as being a violent revolutionary like he was being accused of. Even this corrupt ruler who wants to work with the crowd can't find anything on Jesus. He knows he's innocent, and so he's trying to find a way to fix this. Jesus' perfect Jesus's innocence before the Roman system points to his perfect innocence before God. Jesus was a perfectly innocent man. It's another amazing thing in this story. You've never met an innocent man or woman. You never have. You've never met someone like this. That under every law, under every statute, before man and before God, this person was totally innocent. This won't satisfy the mob. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. Another gospel mentions that it's a tradition of the governor to release one prisoner per year to the people. 
they start calling for Barabbas so that Jesus can remain in custody and be killed. The crowd picks Barabbas so that they can kill Jesus. Now, who was Barabbas? Right? The verse says that he's thrown into prison for an insurrection that he started in the city and for murder. So Barabbas is a special kind of criminal that when I see criminals like him, I actually get angry. There, there's a few things that can be angry, and this kind of criminal makes my blood boil. It's, when you hear about it on the news, it's a criminal who's committing a violent crime, like robbing a convenience store or something like that, and in the process, they kill someone in the process. I, I, that's what I imagine is happening here when I read he started an insurrection and he murdered someone. You hear about that? Like an innocent cop gets killed or someone working behind the counter gets killed and you really feel just a bunch of anger. Like, why did this even happen? That, that, that's the way that you should have felt about this man who there is saying, let this man go so that Jesus can die. And friends, we should, first of all, be, feel the heaviness of that and also feel that when we intentionally live sinfully, when we intentionally disobey the Lord, we're making a very similar decision where we say, I prefer what is corrupted and what is evil over what is good and what is worthy. Right To choose to wander away from Jesus into sin is to pick what's sinful over picking Jesus. So let us continually be repenting and coming to this Christ who's worthy of our surrender. Verse 20. Pilate addressed them one more time, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to him, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. The crowd shouts, crucify him, crucify him. They're not just demanding that Jesus would die. They're demanding the worst possible death for Jesus. Right? Crucifixion was designed by the Roman government to punish the worst offenders. It's, it's a way of death where you, where you hang suspended in the air, nailed to wood, until you can no longer pull yourself up to breathe anymore and you suffocate to death. So they're yelling for the worst kind of death for Jesus. And Pilate knows, he knows that this is wrong. He's, a third time, he asserts to them, this man is innocent. He knows it's outside of his authority to put him to death. 
It couldn't be any clearer Jesus is perfectly innocent. But then something wicked happens. Their voices prevailed. Justice did not prevail. Their voices prevailed. Pilate failed, and he handed over Jesus to the will of the mob. We've seen violent mobs in the news. We've seen the ugliness of a mob taking the life of someone. We've heard about it in history. And that's what happens here. The mob comes for Jesus, and the governor fails to protect him. Verse 25, he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate picked appeasing the will of the crowd over not condemning an innocent man. I asked at the beginning of the service, can you think of an injustice? Can you think of an outrage that makes your blood boil? This one is far worse than anything we could imagine. This one's far more grievous. Jesus was pure, innocent, spotless, helper, friend of sinners, and spent his life confronting evil. Barabbas is evil, selfish, murderous, proud, full of sin. And they choose Barabbas over Jesus. Outrage is the word. What's the point of all this? What's the point this story is making for us? That if Jesus didn't do outrageous things, like taking Barabbas' place, he wouldn't do outrageous things like taking mine in your place. As the story goes on, it becomes clear that when Jesus goes to the cross, he's taking the place of sinners. The innocent one is taking the place of the guilty. That's the point of the story. One thing that stuck out to me is that if you read what the crime Barabbas committed was, he committed insurrection and murder, those were the exact same crimes that Jesus was falsely accused of. Luke's doubling down. This innocent person is the substitute for the guilty person. And it's scandalous. It's crazy. It's not what you would expect. The innocent man dying for the guilty person is something that we should say, this should never happen. And yet it's the only way that we could ever be right with God. The only way we could be right with God. In fact, Jesus dying for us would have been the biggest outrage in the history of the world. If, I mean, sorry, the biggest injustice in the history of the world if he had not done it willingly. And yet he did. That's the only reason why he's able to take our place. And why he's able to be the one who pays for our sins was because he did it willingly. Think about that. Think about Jesus taking Barabbas' place. Then think about him taking your place and doing it willingly. Right? This should outrage us. It should perplex us. It should blow our minds. 
If we ever approach the cross and think, that's nice, or that was really neat that Jesus did that, or that was a really beautiful moment, and we don't think, oh my God, what have you done? We're not approaching the cross rightly yet. I think the point of this story is that Jesus taking Barabbas' place is supposed to be so outrageous that it should continually shock us back to spiritual life when we become lethargic. I hope this doesn't happen, but if my heart were to stop right now and I just fell down right up here, and there was a defibrillator hanging from the wall, I would hope someone would go over there Shock me back to life. This story is a spiritual defibrillator for us, church. If you feel like Jesus doesn't mean that much to you right now, or you're wandering away from him, or you're not surrendering to him, Jesus taking the place of sinners is a spiritual defibrillator for us to shock us back to life. We should be shocked by this story. We should be brought to life by this story. That Jesus took the place of sinners like us. And you might be here this morning, and maybe you don't know if Jesus took your place. Or maybe you've never asked him to. As soon as you come to him and you admit that you're a sinner and you need a savior, all of a sudden his sacrifice is for you. You might have murdered someone. You might have done worse than that. And his sacrifice is for you if you come to him. So there's not a single person that has to leave this room this morning without your sins 100% forgiven, 100% set free. And if you are following Jesus, and this message is shocking you back to life, If Jesus will hang on the cross and die for your sins, won't he care for you in every other area of life? Won't he care for you in every other area of life? Do you really ever have to disobey him? Do you really ever have to wander away from him as if he's not trustworthy? We don't need the bottle. We don't need our TVs. We don't need excessive food, unhealthy relationships, or apps on our cell phone as our refuge. We have a refuge. He'll take care of us. Look at what he did. Look at what he did. We don't need comparisons with others to make ourselves feel worthy. Look at what he did. Church, we need to keep experiencing how outrageous and wonderful it is that Jesus took our place. He meant for the craziness of what he did to keep shocking us back to spiritual life again and again and again. We need these stories to keep coming back to spiritual life. And so if there's one practical step, one practical thing to take with us as we go this morning, is it's good to remind ourselves how outrageous it is that Jesus takes the place of sinners to overcome our dullness, to overcome our sleepiness, to overcome our sinfulness, and keep following together as a pure people of God together. Let's pray together.